From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 2712985 you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com i'm jack williams michael mccall producing the program your call screener is matt gubensky and jeff burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on youtube or facebook live you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program and our host, as he is every Monday, the aforementioned, Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing well. I was just wondering if there was a balloon over EWTN this weekend. Yeah, they don't want to surveil anything going on here, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, Sally in Buffalo writes in to you, A relative of mine is reading tarot cards online and making money. She had problems with the law a few years ago, and we prayed for her, and she overcame those problems, but now she is doing these readings and opening herself up to Satan again. I want to talk to her about this, but don't know where to start. Please advise me. Also, she told me she has started to attend Mass again. Well, that's a good sign. She's going back to Mass. Um, she does need to confess this and speak to her, her parish priest because reading tarot cards is not an innocuous thing. Tarot cards, Ouija boards, all kinds of fortune-telling, necromancing, trying to communicate with the dead by summoning up spirits through seances and, and, and the like. Uh, these are all violations of the First Commandment, and uh, we had a, a priest who was teaching here at the seminary, uh, Father Dennis McManus, who was an expert uh, on those areas. And he told us that these vehicles like tarot cards and Ouija boards and anything that is remotely connected with the occult um, are in a sense sending a text to the devil that you're interested <laughs> he's going to reply all right uh, so you don't want any of your loved ones or friends uh, to go down that path even though they may initially think this is harmless this is just fun uh, you know like reading their horoscopes in a newspaper uh, but the thing is, it's you start to believe and put credence in this idea that there's secret knowledge out there. That's what the ancient heresy of Gnosticism was, that there was secret information. And yet Jesus is the exact opposite. He said, go to the four corners of the earth and preach the good news to everyone, everywhere. So um, I would say in, in a very loving, a charitable, uh, fraternal way, say to your, your, your friend there that, you know, Please, 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 uh, I'm happy you're going back to church, 
but talk to the priest. Talk to the priest about this, um, whether she goes to confession first or if she just speaks to him privately. Uh, that, that's something she needs to do because in many cases, um, not only do you open the possibility, but you've already announced your intentions to be susceptible. And so sometimes a person may need a, a prayer of deliverance because of this. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines. It'll be busy later. 833-288-3986. John would like to know, why do Catholic theologians and apologists seem to elevate the writings of so-called canonized saints as if their writings are inspired? Why should anyone put any amount of spiritual faith in such writings? Well, on the one hand, uh, there's a valid point that even a canonized saint uh, is not the equivalent of divine inspiration. And so we as the Catholic Church believe firmly that inspiration, uh, in terms of divine revelation, ended with the death of St. John, the one who wrote uh, uh, the Gospel and uh, his epistle and the Apocalypse or the Revel Book of Revelation. So, yes, uh, any canonized saint... Um, whatever they write, even though they've been declared now in heaven, their writings are in no way equivalent or superior to divine revelation. That's what's contained in sacred scripture or in uh, sacred tradition. That being said, we honor, we revere what the saints, can thy saints have to say, because we believe you know they, they made it, they got to heaven, so they might have some insights that are, are valuable. It's sort of like the advice, counsel, or wisdom that people would seek today. You know, if you're going to invest your money in the stock market, you would speak to someone who's been around the block a few times with that and knows what they're talking about. You want to get uh, medical advice, you go to a, a doctor who, who went to medical school. So we go to the saints for uh, advice and counsel, but we never, never take their writings and equivocate them with sacred scripture, because sacred scripture, that's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. The sacred author was specifically chosen by God, and, you know, that's something that we say is a category in and of itself, because that's God revealing sacred uh, truths necessary for salvation through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. The writings of the saints, like Mother Teresa or St. Thomas Aquinas uh, or anyone else, uh, we, we take with a, gr a grain of salt in that, you know, there's some advice I may be able to use here, but we make that very clear distinction. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We've got some open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. Terry would like to know, how would you explain that Jesus had to establish a church? because he chose to um, he was not coerced in any way because he is God but he chose and he uses that word when you look at Matthew's gospel uh, he makes it very clear when he says to Peter thou art Peter upon this rock I referring to himself Jesus will build my church and also he says in the gospel um, about fraternal correction you know if your uh, brother sins speak to him privately then if that doesn't work bring another person along work and bring him to the church and if he doesn't listen to the church then treat him as a, a tax collector uh, or, or sinner 
that's very clear that Jesus uses that word uh, in the Greek ecclesia, uh, which means uh, the church, um, and Jesus chose to do this. At no point did he say, read this, although we have sacred scripture, the sacred authors wrote, but before told us what Jesus said and did, but it was the church to whom sacred scripture was entrusted because the text itself don't, doesn't tell us what books belong in there. There's no litmus test. There's no table of contents. That's something of recent vintage. Uh, so we need the church uh, to safeguard uh, the seven sacraments, but also even the, this beautiful gift that we call the Bible. Jackie would, uh, Jackie would like to know, what is a mortal sin and what does the church teach about it? A mortal sin, we use the word mortal because it refers to the fact that a person dies in the life of grace. Their physical body is still alive, but their soul, in a sense, dies. Uh, sanctifying grace uh, is no longer present. The person pushes out the indwelling of the Holy Trinity because mortal sin is so repugnant to God. And it's more than just breaking rule or law. The reason why it's a rule or a law is because God wants to protect us in the same way, you know, you see warning labels on things like a hairdryer says, do not immerse in water while plugged in. Well, that's for a reason, to save your life. In the same way, when you look at your uh, prescription from the drugstore and you look at, at the bottle and it says, uh, do not drive heavy machinery, don't fly a plane or um, be a conductor on a train and, or do anything because this medicine will make you sleepy and drowsy and, and you might cause harm or uh, hit, kill yourself or somebody else. In the same way, mortal sin uh, is something that's deadly in the life of grace. However, God can restore us back to life. And that's through the grace of forgiveness and especially through the beautiful sacrament uh, of penance. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to John in Detroit, Carl in South Carolina, Lisa in New York, and we would love to hear from you. That number again is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN offers the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass right here from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel live every morning at 8 Eastern Time right after the Sunrise Morning Show. Don't miss out. And we can even send a link to your email inbox every day. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-3986. 
As promised, John in Detroit, listening on Ave Maria Radio, is first up today. John, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, Jesus said, it is harder for a rich man to be saved than for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. Um, Some people have talked about, like, there's a pass in Jerusalem or somewhere where the camel has to go through uh, and get take off all his uh, packages and to get through there is is Jesus is not referring to that is he he's referring to that he means that literally uh, yeah I've heard scholars refer to the the, uh, the theory that uh, there is a place called the eye of the needle where uh, a camel would need to be literally on its knees and all his packaging taken off to get through. Uh, there's also a, a theory that was proposed that the the word in Aramaic can also mean rope as well as uh, uh, a needle. Um, but remember, in ancient Hebrew, and at the time of Jesus especially, uh, they did not have superlatives like we do in, in our English language today and in many modern languages. And so there was a high use of hyperbole. So, for instance, when Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple, well, we, we don't interpret that literally. We understand literally what the words mean, but he's not saying literally you have to hate your mother and father because that would go against the, the commandment to, to honor your father and mother. He also says if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, we don't do that as Christians go around chopping off hands or gouging out our eyeballs. Yet that's what the text literally says. So when he talks about the impossibility of of uh, someone going through the eye of a needle, it's hyperbole. It's a manner of speaking that was very much in use at the time of Christ, which we even use today. Someone says, "I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse." Well, <laughs> I don't think they literally mean that, unless you know you're in northern Italy and you want. Uh, um, mortadella, because that's where it comes from. Uh, so figures of speech that are in sacred scripture, we we, uh, we we literally translate them, but to understand them, to apply them, again, we want to always keep sacred scripture in context. Uh, we take the text in context, otherwise we have a pretext. So uh, yes, that's what he said, but I'm a firm belief that you know he meant what he said in terms of this was a figure of speech. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Carl is in South Carolina listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Carl, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father John. I love you, your books. I love the show. Uh, A quick question. A Catholic high school theology teacher told me about what is called the new creation, that after the last judgment... Those who go to heaven will come back to earth with our glorified bodies and live in peace and harmony. Is this true? Well, it's it's uh, a speculation uh, because the, 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 the phrase does uh, appear in the sacred text, you know. Uh, but this idea that it's particularly this earth, theologians are still out, you know, the jury's out on that. The church has not solemnly defined that. We do believe that the world will end, the physical world, uh, at the end of time, uh, when we have the second coming of Christ, then we have the resurrection of the, de- of the dead, we have the uh, general judgment. 
Um, but it's true that at the end of time, with the resurrection of the body, we're going to have bodies like Jesus did on Easter. His body uh, was real. You could feel it. You could touch it. Remember, he said to Thomas, touch my hands and my feet. Uh, he had made um, some cooked fish and ate it with his disciples after the resurrection to prove to them he was not a ghost. So people like St. Thomas Aquinas firmly believe that you know, we will have these bodies which we will be able to do like he did, eat fish and have a good time, uh, but we'll also be able to do like he did and walk through closed doors and walls because uh, that's one of the attributes uh, of a resurrected body. So where will those bodies go? Well, where's the body of Jesus and the body of Mary now? It's in heaven. Um, those are the only two physical bodies that are there right now. Uh, obviously, they don't need to be on earth because they're up in heaven. So human beings, after the resurrection, we won't need to have a physical earth. But there may be some type of uh, regeneration of something that, in which the, a world that never ends would be there, but it's not by necessity. It would only be by God's divine decree, which would also include the possibility of all our, um, you know, animal friends that uh, that God could reconstitute them in such a way. Because I know everybody is always asking that question about dogs and cats and gerbils and raccoons and everything, uh, weasels. Do they get to heaven or not? Um, so in the new creation, that that's certainly a possibility, but um, it's not de fide. So you, you, the jury's out on that one, too. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Lisa in the great state of New York watching us on YouTube today. Lisa, you are on with Father John. Yes, thank you very much. Hello, Father. Thank you very much Hello. for all your knowledge and uh, your wisdom. My question today is uh, there has been um, going in the... Uh, a question going on in, in social media that Jesus, that the, the Lord loves Judas, that because God is love and He loves everyone, so that therefore that He loves Judas. So how do you answer to that? I say Judas is condemned; he's in hell. <clears throat> okay. Well, um, even the Church has not solemnly defined that Judas is in hell. It's probable or likely, but. The Church has not said uh, with absolute moral or metaphysical certitude that he is in hell uh, any more than we would say uh, Cain is in hell for killing his brother Abel or uh, any other real nasty people, and you can pick almost anyone through human history, because even though Judas betrayed Christ um, and even though he hanged himself, there's always the possibility that just before he lost consciousness, just before he died, he had repentance. Uh, that's why um, we don't make any pronouncement on anyone who's committed suicide because we don't know uh, uh, what their state of mind was when they did this and especially just before death. And so there's always a possibility that anyone, no matter how bad they were in, in life, they could have possibly had uh, repentance. But that's why purgatory is so uh, beautiful, because if that was the case, somebody like Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 20 pieces of silver, then um, all the more reason he would need uh, some cleansing in, in purgatory. So it's, like I said, if you were if you were a, 
um, playing the odds, I would say, you know, yeah, it's more than likely he, he didn't make it, but I can't say that he's in hell. And anyone who does say that is going out on the limb because, you know, it's possible that he did repent. Thanks so much, Lisa. We appreciate the phone call. We'll stay in the great state of New York. Jasmine is on Long Island, uh, watching us rather on YouTube. Jasmine, you're on with Father John. Yes, hi, good afternoon, Father John um, Fragilio. Blessings to you. Um, my question <clears throat> my question is as follows. Why doesn't the Catholic Church have more teachings about um, um, St. Anne and St. Joachim? Um, why don't they teach more about how in the Old Testament, Sarah and Abraham, they were very old in age, and they were praying and wanting a child, and... Um, and they couldn't have the child, and then finally the Word of God came through, and finally they had Isaac. But Isaac was their only child. They didn't have any other children after Isaac. Um, the Old Testament mirroring the New Testament, um, I mean, I'm still learning my faith, so mm-hmm. bear with me, please. But the Old Testament um, mirroring the New Testament, I would believe that, you know, Mother Mary, hence, you know, had no brothers and sisters. She was an old And then Mother Mary herself, she only had Jesus. I just, I'm, in my way of thinking, I'm, I may be totally wrong, but in my way of thinking, if we, um, if the church starts teaching more about St. Annie's and Joaquin, maybe we wouldn't have so many um, other distractions about Jesus having a brother here, a cousin there, et cetera, and a sister there, et cetera, et cetera. The other issue that I want to make is that a couple of years ago, I was um, visiting my family in Florida, and when I was in Florida, my brother um, introduced me to one of his friends, which had taken the time to me around, take me places while my brother was insisting all the work. work. Anyhow, the thing was that one day I... I came home and I told my brother, you know, I'm so shocked. My brother says, why? And I says, because I never met a person that had so many cousins. My brother says, what do you mean? And I said, well, we're riding in the car, and then he's waving to someone, and they yell out, hey, cousin. And he comes out, yells out, hey, cousin. We get out the car, we go to a restaurant, another cousin. Everyone is like, everyone was this person's cousin. My brother laughs. My brother says, oh, no, no, that's their culture. They just call everyone cousin." Okay, well, let's unpackage the, the, the first thing there. Um, I agree with you that, you know, we, we could speak more, and we should speak more about Saints Joachim and Anne, uh, the, the parents of, of the Virgin Mary and the grandparents of Jesus. Um, but that's not the, the church's fault. Um, individual priests and deacons and bishops uh, have not spoken as much as they should have as they did in the past. But Pope Francis just recently, okay, recently instituted uh, or elevated you know, the Feast of Saints Joachim and Anne, um, they were separate. Now July 26th is both of them, uh, Joachim and Anne. It's a feast day of the church. And the Holy Father asked that um, we pray for grandparents and a special plenary indulgence is available to grandparents. Um, the details of Joachim and Anne are not in sacred scripture, but they're in what we call uh, an apocryphal book, uh, the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. Uh, it's not considered Gnostic 
propaganda, as we would say, is with the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Judas. So this is something that we could, that we believe is is accurate. So the names of Joachim and Anne are listed there. It's just not there's no guarantee of divine inspiration or uh, infallibility. And we'll get to this business about cousins in just one moment. We've got a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. We're talking to Jasmine on Long Island, and she wants to know she had an experience where a friend of her brother's was calling everybody on Long Island cousin. (laughs) Well, I got relatives on Long Island and Brooklyn and Staten Island, and they literally are cousins. They're not first cousins, but they're... Uh, in fact, ironically, when Father Brigenti was first made pastor in Flemington, New Jersey, I discovered a fourth cousin there. We have the same great-great-grandfather, so we're fourth cousins. And then we found out we have another fourth cousin, a Dominican nun in, in Summit, New Jersey. So this idea of everyone being a cousin, um, I know some people do that, or they use the, the word brother, hey, bro, uh, to be more inclusive. But in terms of scripture, when Jesus is told, your, your brethren are outside, your brothers and sisters, uh, the word that's used in the Greek text of the gospel, adelphoi, uh, which is the plural of adelphos, uh, the Greek word can refer to any relation, whether it's brother or uncle or nephew or cousin, of all different degrees, first, second, third, fourth, and whatever, and even once removed. Uh, what's funny is when you go to Europe, and people will say, this is my cousin. Americans typically think, oh, you must, you know, your, your parents must be siblings. Well, there's other degrees of, of being a cousin. Where here in the United States, we're so particular, like, well, he's not really my cousin. Yes, he is. I had a prisoner, I said, I ran into your nephew the other day, and she said, well, that's not my nephew, father, that's my husband's nephew. I said, well, when you married him, you married all his relatives, in a sense. That's your nephew now, whether you like him or not. So, um, even though this fellow that she's referring to calls everyone cousin. Um, you know, we have to expand our understanding as they did at the time of Christ. And so there, thereby, when they say your, your male relatives are out here, they're of all varying degrees. But as she pointed out with the first question, we firmly believe as a matter of faith, Jesus had no siblings and uh, the Blessed Mother was the only child of Joachim and Anne as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Mike's up next. He's a first-time caller in Jamesville, Wisconsin, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mike, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Boy, I'm so glad to talk to you, Father. I've been a big fan of yours for years with Web of Faith, and uh, I actually have taken, in the past, Catholic for Dummies into adoration. (laughs) And uh, enjoy... uh, I've been enjoying your your wisdom for many years. My Thank question, yes, yeah, and it, uh, my question is this: um, on the story of a road to Emmaus, um, when the uh, people that went in to eat the uh, 
I mean, had the, after breaking in the bread, which is the Holy Eucharist, they had full understanding of what our Lord was, a full understanding of Scripture or what our Lord was uh, was talking to them on the way, you know, to the uh, to the meal. And my question is, uh, at, the, at the Last Supper, two days before, uh, at the first uh, uh, Holy, you know, the Last Supper, why did not all the apostles get the same understanding um, when they received uh, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord? Okay, well, that, that's a very good question, and easy answer is I we don't know. Um, the apostles who were there at the Last Supper, and we say that's when uh, Holy Orders was instituted, the same time Jesus instituted the Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, he established the Sacrament of Holy Orders because we believe that they were all um, made bishops at that moment, as well as priests, um, and yet they didn't fully realize what was happening. You know, they didn't, uh, they didn't after that Last Supper, uh, see themselves as clergy as as we do now, but the powers, the authority was given to them. Now on the road to Emmaus, the disciples there, um, it's more than likely, most probable, that they were merely disciples. They were not one of the apostles. Uh, they they do not recognize Christ, but um, that's not a sign that they didn't know who Jesus was, um, because the resurrected body. Remember even. Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him at first when she goes to the empty tomb, and then when he calls her, because she thinks he's the gardener, and she he says, Mary, and then she goes, oh, Rabboni, Rabbi. Um, so the unveiling of Christ, it's at the Mass, at the last or at the um, Eucharist that's celebrated at Emmaus, that their eyes were opened, it says, and then they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. The apostles... Um, they're, they see Jesus at the Last Supper, and so uh, there's nothing really to reveal there because he's there and he doesn't disappear. Where Emmaus, at the break of the bread, he physically disappears before their eyes because now he's present in the Holy Eucharist. And it would have sort of been redundant for him to, in a sense, hold himself in his hands. So Emmaus is connected to, but it's distinct from what happened in the upper room at the Last Supper. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, next up is Gene in the great state of South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Gene, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Uh, thank you. Hi, Father John. Uh, my question is, uh, hi, my question is about... Um, lay people like Eucharistic ministers distributing communion. I know that when priests and deacons receive holy orders, their hands are anointed and with oil, and they are able to, to handle the body of Christ. But I'm just wondering about lay people, because I've read in a couple of places that they shouldn't unless it's an extraordinary circumstance. So what is your take on that? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked that question. First of all, we will make a very important distinction. Um, it's true that bishops, priests, and deacons are what we call the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion, and lay people uh, can be delegated as extraordinary ministers. And we use the word extraordinary not meaning, oh, you know, very special, but that 
they're distinct from the ordinary. So extraordinary merely means that they are not the typical ordinary uh, ones to give out communion. The deacons are not anointed, their hands are not anointed at, at when they're ordained. Only the priest has his hands anointed uh, at, at his ordination. Uh, the bishop, who's already had his hands anointed because he was a priest first, uh, he gets his head anointed, uh, then they place the, the mitre upon him. Now, delegated extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion uh, can be allowed by the individual bishop, and then he can delegate um, and to this to the pastor, and uh, the pastor can, in emergency, all right, delegate someone for a one-time use. But because they're extraordinary, they should be used only when it's necessary, and the vision was not that this is merely convenient, but that it would just take too much time uh, for the priest uh, to give out communion all by himself, or that the priests of the parish, and when I was helping um, Father Briganti in, in Flemington, New Jersey, it was beautiful to see all the priests and deacons giving out communion, and people really appreciated that. It wasn't that they felt, oh, we're not worthy. None of us are worthy to receive or give out Holy Communion, but the, the act of giving out communion um, again, the, the reason why they're called ordinary ministers, just like the ordinary minister of baptism is the priest or deacon or bishop, but in an emergency, anyone can baptize. So the fact that you have extraordinary ministers doesn't take away that the ordinary ones should be the typical one. problem is, after the, the Second Vatican Council, which uh, allowed for this with good cause, it's taken out of context, and all of a sudden now people feel entitled. They say, well, my name's on the list, or, you know, we want to have as many lay people as possible. Well, it's not an issue of whose turn it is. It should be, there's the need, step up to the plate. Uh, the hospital chaplain needs help bringing communion uh, to the sick. That's an extraordinary um, occurrence there. But the typical is what we don't want to get away from, is that that's what the priest, the deacon, and the bishop were ordained to do. So uh, I, I'm not against it. I use deacons uh, in my parish to help bring community to the sick. Also at the hospital when I was hospital chaplain um, in the parish. But I, I've seen it done where if all the priests, all the deacons, you know, are present at most of the masses, if not all of them, um, you, you don't need as many, if at all, uh, lay people as extraordinary ministers, but that doesn't mean that they're. It's wrong to use them. It's the proper way of using them, and the Vatican's issued many documents uh, supporting that. Uh, next up is Brandon, a first-time caller in Lakeway, Texas, listening on the EWTN app. Brandon, you're on with Father John Trujillo. Hello, Father John. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Hello. I have a question. Um, my question is, um, when it comes to the separation of church and state, now, in, in the state constitution or in our United States constitution, I have a hard time finding where it talks about the separation of church and state, if it even exists. And why is it that the state is all too happy to always meddle in the church's business, but the state doesn't really like it when the church has anything to say to the state? is my question. Okay. Well, that's a very good question, because um, the separation of church and state, that phrase doesn't exist in the Constitution uh, or in the Declaration of Independence. It was a commentary, okay, uh, by one of the Founding Fathers, um, but it's not part of the text. 
And so one could rightly say that's an interpretation. Um, we sort of live with that. Is that sort of that's, that's canonized in, in our American culture, separation of church and state. But I've also read contemporary um, founding fathers use a different verbiage. Instead of separation of church and state, a distinction between church and state. Okay? But even if we, we grant that the, the concept of separation of church and state is part of our American culture, even though it's not found in the document itself, separation merely means that the church and state are distinct inst- institutions, organizations. And the, the state, the government, has no right to interfere with uh, church runnings. And equally, that's why I, as a priest, you know, I don't tell my parishioners who to vote for, but I have a moral obligation to uh, share with them what the church demands that we do as voters, that we vote with a properly formed conscience, and that we use the principles of the natural moral law as well as our informed, uh, revealed faith that we make a, a proper choice that is not just whoever you want, but that you have to make a moral choice and say, I have to vote for the person that's going to you know, do the most good, especially with the priority of right to life, which is the preeminent. That's something all the bishops and popes have said consistently through the ages. We're not the, it's not the only issue, but it's the highest issue, because without the right to life, there are no other rights involved. That being said, you know, I as a priest, I'm not allowed by canon law to run for public office. Not that I would want to, but, um, you know, in the past, there were some instances where priests actually sat in Congress. Uh, Pope John Paul made sure that that was not the case when the 1983 Code of Canon Law came out. And so, you know, there was a Jesuit who was in Congress. He had to leave. Uh, there was a priest in um, Nicaragua and El Salvador. They had to leave, leave office or leave the priesthood. So, yes whether you call it the separation of church and state or a line of distinction, um, you, you hit on an important point that uh, we need to respect each other. We have our own jurisdictions. Yet one thing that trumps the other is that divine law is superior to human law. So God's law, you know, thou shalt not kill, outweighs even when the state, because the state legalized uh, abortion, the state legalized slavery, and God's law contradicted that. And we have to decide we better to obey God than men. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. It's Monday. That means the journey home tonight at 8 Eastern time. Uh, John Mark welcomes Shristi Gupta, a former atheist, who shares her journey to the Catholic Church. That's the journey home tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Uh, next up is Angela. She's a first-time caller in Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Well, we lost Angela. Um, <laughs> Angela, call us back. Uh, Carl wants to know, what is transubstantiation, and how do Catholics understand it? Okay. Well, it's a long word, um, but let's just break it down. Uh, transubstantiation, trans, uh, a changing substantiation of substances. So, a changing of substances. So what transubstantiation means, and it was first formalized uh, at the Fourth Lateran Council, but the concept was taught even before that, the idea that um, the substance of bread and wine change into the substances of Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, in scholastic 
metaphysics, there's a distinction made between a substance and an accident. An accident is what a thing uh, appears to our five senses, or what things look like. But the substance is invisible. It's what a thing actually is. So you look at an apple and you see, okay, uh, it may be round, it may be oval, uh, it may be a Macintosh, it might be a delicious apple. There's different characteristics about the apple. But then there's the substance of what makes an apple an apple as opposed to being a pear or being an orange. And it's something that transcends what the senses perceive. It's a concept, and but yet it's a, it's a reality. So transubstantiation is the only occurrence where the substance changes without the accidents changing. Normally in our experience, if I change the substance, it's also going to change the appearance. If I burn a piece of paper and it becomes ashes, well, it's no longer paper and it no longer looks like paper. But in the Holy Eucharist, Bread and wine still look like bread and wine, but what they are, what makes them, what the substance of them is what changes. And Martin Luther had maintained an idea of consubstantiation that the substances of bread and wine remain with the substances of Jesus' body and blood, and Trent condemned that and said, no, we believe in transubstantiation. It's a changing of substances because Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't say this looks like, this acts like, he says, this is the verb to be, predicate nominative. So what it is, is his body and blood, but thanks be to God, it doesn't look or taste like uh, flesh and blood because most of us would not want to go to communion if that was the case. And yet he commands us, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. How can we drink and eat something uh, which is really his body and blood unless he made a way in which it doesn't gross us out? And so... The accidents of bread and wine remain beautifully, taste like bread, taste like wine, but what it is, the substance, is what changes. So that's the beauty of uh, the, the dogma of transubstantiation. Angela has called back in Dallas, Texas, oh, listening on Guadalupe Radio. <laughs> Angela, you're on with Father John. Hello. Hi. Can you all hear me? Okay. I've um, got a friend who says that worship is uh, by the way they sing the songs and praise and hallelujah and hands up in the air and how beautiful they can sing and the speeches and etc. Of course, Protestant. And I'm trying to explain the difference between worshiping as a Catholic and worshiping as a Protestant. What does worship mean to us? <laughs> okay. Well, worship is something we owe to God and God alone. We use a very technical term in Latin, latria. It's worship or adoration. Uh, it's something we give only to God. We give reverence, okay, high respect or esteem uh, to, to the saints and to the Blessed Mother. Uh, that's called dulia. Uh, it's, it's honoring, and Mary gets the highest, so that's what's hyperdulia. But the latria, the adoration or worship we give is to God alone, because, again, the first commandment, you shall not worship false gods. Now, what constitutes worship? Well, God decided, he defined worship in the Old Testament on how it was to be done. And especially since the time of Moses, you know, the, the, the law of Moses, uh, how, especially particularly with the, um, the Passover, the Seder meal, Jesus established worship at the Last Supper. Do this in memory of me. Uh, we just mentioned a few moments ago uh, the um, 
on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was recognized in the breaking of the bread. That phrase, breaking of the bread, was the most ancient way, what we now call the Mass, the Holy Eucharist. And that is how Christians primarily worship God. Well, it wasn't the only way, because certainly uh, prayers, songs, hymns, poems, uh, building churches, stained glass windows, all these things enhanced our worship, but the worship given to God, uh, Pope Benedict uh, made this very clear uh, in his book on the liturgy, that God defined, decided, and told us how to worship him. We don't need to recreate, reinvent the wheel. He told us, and he told us specifically at the Last Supper, do this. And so that's what we do. Uh, that's the highest form of worship, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And then the other forms of worship, when someone makes a holy hour, or when they read the Bible, when they um, pray or sing, those are all legitimate, but they are not the highest form because this is what God himself gave to us. Jesus established this. This wasn't created by the church. It was given to the church by Christ himself. Thanks so much, Angela, for calling back. We appreciate it. You know, Father, uh, it's often said that the, the heart of religion is worship and the heart of worship is sacrifice. Absolutely. So where you fit the band in there, I don't know. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We could probably squeeze you in if you got on the line right now at 833-288-3986. Um, Ed says, I am a non-religious person. How is religious worship a good thing to do as a means of having a relationship? Why is worship virtuous? Okay, I'm glad he asked that because people say I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Well, it's not either or. Pope Benedict made this so many made it clear so many times. It's both and. We are to be spiritual and we are to be religious. Religion is something we owe out of justice. It's a public demonstration of our love of God, our belief in God. Spiritual life is something we do privately ourselves. Religion and especially worship we do publicly because we owe it to God. That's why you know, the third commandment, keep holy the Sabbath day. That's why, as Catholic Christians, we go to Mass uh, on Sunday or Saturday evening. Um, it's a way in which I connect with the other believers, the mystical body of Christ. And it's outside of myself. I do this because I owe it to God. So when people say, I didn't get anything out of Mass. Well, if you get anything out of Mass or not, that's not why I go. I go because it's the right thing to do. And I will get out of Mass the more I put into it. In the same way, on Mother's Day and Father's Day. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about our mom or dad. Someone's birthday, we honor them because it's them. It's not about me. So when I worship God, I don't put myself first. I put God first. And I need to do that publicly as well as interiorly. So we have the two dimensions of human life, the outside, the inside, the interior, exterior. And Alan writes in, if Christ's death on the cross was enough for our salvation, why do we need penance or purgatory? We need purgatory to cleanse us. Jesus died for us, so he paid the debt, and yet we still have attachment to sin. I mean, it's certainly possible, the church makes it very clear, that theoretically someone could go directly to heaven. Purgatory is not necessary for everyone, but some people need it because of the fact they need to be cleansed. There's, they have the attachment. Other people... They've done their purgatory, in a sense, on earth, or they don't need to be cleansed. They have no attachment. But to be honest, I know I myself, you know, I'm sorry for all my past sins, but there's some of them that still 
you know, I, I hate to admit it, but I, I've had some fond memories of things I've done, and I need to expunge those things. If I don't do it in this life, I will do it in the next. And the temporal punishment for sin, uh, again, is different from the, the pain of sin that is suffering in hell. Purgatory is not hell with parole. It's a cleansing, a purgation. And Shepard writes in, can you explain the perpetual virginity of Mary? We believe that Mary was uh, a virgin, uh, ante inter postpartum, which means before, during, and after. That was to protect the, the sanctity and dignity of the birth of Christ so that no one could ever insinuate that maybe he wasn't. Um, you know, the, the special virgin birth. Because if Mary had kids before and after, there'd always be a nagging suspicion. Well, how do we know if, if Jesus had these half-siblings, you know, wouldn't they want to run the church? Um, but if Jesus had no siblings at all, before or after, it reaffirms the fact that this was a, a very special uh, divine act that took place with, with her, her giving birth because it just normally does not happen that a woman gives birth without uh, the assistance of, of a father. You know, it's interesting, when you look at our culture today, the family is certainly under attack, and it's kind of been that way for 2,000 years because that's generally, if we're going to get friendly fire from fellow believers, it's going to be with regard to uh, the matriarch of the Holy Family, huh? Oh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of times it's just confusion or uh, misinformation. It's, uh, but sometimes it's downright nasty, but I give people the benefit of the doubt and say maybe they just didn't hear exactly what the church was really teaching. Father, would you be so kind as to leave us with a blessing? Certainly. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're just getting things kicked off on Open Line this week. Tomorrow we'll be talking faith, family, and fellowship with uh, Father Wade Menezes. Father Mitch will be in the house to answer your questions about church teaching and ancient languages on Wednesday. And on Thursday and Friday, we may have some, some surprise special programming for you. And we may not. We'll see how things work out for us. But until we get together tomorrow with Father Wade, God bless.